Hello and welcome to another edition of Greening the News, the podcast from IEMA, the professional institution for anyone involved in sustainability and the environment. And we all know, don't we, what we mean by green skills and green jobs, but it sounds like there's still quite a lot of work for us to do to uh, inform the general public. Uh, IEMA carried out a YouGov survey which suggested that 65% of respondents did said they didn't have access to training for green skills and didn't really know what green skills meant. So our very own Martin Baxter and Leila Take from Deloitte are here to talk a little bit about a report and some work that we've been doing to try and help bridge that gap. Uh, Martin, first of all, you are the the senior counsel here and you've been here a long time doing exactly this kind of stuff. Why do you think there is still such a big gap between what we think about for green skills and what's actually happening? Well, hi, uh, Sarah, and it's good to be back on the podcast and it's great to be talking about green jobs and skills. I think you know, one of the things that is a, a big focus at the moment with government is around green jobs and, and it's kind of quite difficult to define. I think government has tried to do that but they sometimes get a little bit lost. So people can see working in renewables or maybe starting to see people in heat pumps, but maybe not a lot of people at the moment, um, as being part of this journey. But when you start to think about green skills, it's about how do we blend green thinking in terms of knowledge, skills, behaviours, competencies, um, through all job functions. And that message just hasn't got through yet. Um, Companies are starting to pick up on it a little bit. And I think the work that we've been doing with Deloitte um, to develop some some tools and insights are really going to help to move that forward. Now, Leila, I wonder if we could maybe talk a little bit more about that report. Um, I mean, obviously, you're working with people across all sectors of the economy. Do you find that their eyes glaze over slightly when you start talking about green skills and jobs? You know, they don't really know what you're talking about and how to, to bridge that gap that we've been talking about. It's interesting because in some sectors, they are actually quite mature. So we uh, some time ago did a piece focused around energy resources and industrial clients and their net zero skills gap, because the shift in, for instance, oil and gas has been happening for some time already. But then in other sectors, and we saw this in the report and um, some of the individuals we spoke to, it's nowhere on the radar yet. It's been something that has crept up as a need, including in the world of sustainability professionals. So we spoke to a a sustainability team in a construction firm who have been very much majored in on health and safety for some time with a small E of environment. And they were finding that the pressure to focus on a big E environment was becoming much more prevalent. And they were having their leadership ask them questions that even they didn't yet know as sustainability professionals. So it's really varied um, where different sectors are and where individual businesses are in terms of how how far their eyes are open and what they have or haven't done. But um, it's very clear that we are at a, a tipping point with it all. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people over the past few weeks uh, who've said, yes, people are beginning to get it now. And, you know, I've been here as a sustainability manager kind of shouting in a bit of an empty space. And now suddenly all the, you know, the C-suite, all the managers want to talk to me, but still not really listening in terms of this takes time, this takes effort, this takes resource. And you've got to plan really carefully what your strategy is in order to get out the other side as a green organisation. 
Yes, absolutely. One of the things that I think we we saw and see all the time is there's lots of pockets of good things happening, but they're actually quite fragmented. And um, there's a real need to step back and take a, a strategic view of the transformation required, both in terms of the product services and offers that you put out there as a business full stop, but also how that translates down at a workforce level at every job role. So one of the things we very early on um, when we were tossing ideas around about the report we're very keen to do is make it widely applicable to everyone in every job because um, we recognize that for instance if you're in marketing or if you are in a customer service department you have green skills needs just as someone in procurement and IT do and finance people think that there are small numbers of functions that do need to change, whereas actually it's the enterprise as a whole and it needs to be designed in a strategic way. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, Martin, you're you're very, very wise and you've been doing this for, for a very, very long time. <laughs> I don't know whether to rub it in or anything, but do you think this is a real step change that you know the work that IEM has done with Deloitte is highlighting the fact that sustainability jobs aren't just in specific sectors now. They're really every organisation has to have every job greener. Yeah, well, I mean, the way you would describe my uh, kind of longevity on it, just basically you're saying I'm old, but never mind. We'll, we'll, we'll move past this one. Uh, well, yeah, we'll in a very, very one. loving way, though. I mean, yeah, we are seeing that you know, companies are now recognizing that having made some fairly bold, uh, as Layla said, you know, net zero commitments. Um, when they start to realise what's actually involved, they realise that they have to take the whole organisation with them. And that whole workforce development strategy is something that we are seeing people requiring. We're seeing it quite a lot with our corporate partners where they're starting to develop more coherent internal work programmes to upskill across all job functions. Part of that is general awareness raising. Some of it is around creating teams and champions um, across all job functions, um, which is really powerful. And then the next step is then thinking, what's the specific requirements that I need to build into key functions that enable them to really move ahead quite quickly and be able to kind of drive change um, significantly? And so the type of training and support and uh, learning and development packages that are needed, for example, to transform procurement are quite different than those that are needed in design engineering or potentially different in logistics and the way in which we are trying to kind of move things forward. And I think what's really interesting is that all the discussions that we've had see the sustainability professionals, so kind of the people who are our members, really driving that into the organisation, which is why it's been really, really good to work on this report, launch it with our members and the wider society, um, and thinking about you know how our members can help and, and, and therefore how we are helping our members to be able to drive this action um, forward. 
Exactly. And we would love to, incidentally, uh, hear from all our podcast listeners, whether you're IEMA members or not. Please do tag us in and uh, on Twitter or on social media and let us know what you think of this, what we can do to build on it and how you're going to be using the report in uh, your professional uh, life as well. Leila, I wonder if I could ask you perhaps about, because we've talked about the different sectors that this is going to affect, which is pretty much everyone, everyone in every organisation. But I've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of weeks with people who are aware that there is a big kind of skills group of people kind of in their um, mid-40s to mid-50s who are moving through organisations and contemplating at the end of their professional careers and retirement and what all that experience that is going and how we are replacing it and how quickly we're replacing it. And do you think, again, I mean, working across the UK economy as you do, do you think that this is something that employers are adequately preparing for? I mean, not just green skills, but skills more widely. It's a really fascinating thing to consider, the kind of generational shifts and how that affects workforces, because the kind of leaving the workforce end or starting to think about that. Actually, some of the more recent trends, and Deloitte has lots of different surveys that we've run on a very regular basis over the years, such as our millennial survey, it's shown that people are staying in jobs longer, but perhaps they are shifting to work that they think is more meaningful. So we're seeing that at the more mature end of the workforce, but we're also seeing a shift in, uh, or rather an intensification at entry level as well of people wanting to work for organisations which has purpose and which has a very clear line of sight to positive impact in the world. And I think those as predominant trends are, are really valuable for employers to think about and to harness the passion around. Because um, in the report, again, some of the case studies were very much spoke to the power of green networks and green champions and the grassroots movement of change alongside a more structured, initiative-led movement of change. And I think you can harness that at both ends of the kind of generational spectrum. Mm, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I, I, and I think that brings us on quite nicely to the, the question of the cost of living crisis, which, of course, um, is not just UK based but pretty global at the moment and it's some some people some commentators have been pitching this as an either or you know either you have green skills or you save money by um, by addressing the cost of the living crisis but presumably I mean certainly from what the report says you can do both at the same time I mean do you think that's do you think that's feasible Martin and do you think that's something that we should actually think of as a way of of supporting the argument for for more sustainable skills well i think uh, you know definitely you know the green agenda and in particular that transition to a net zero future is part of addressing that cost of living crisis because without doubt the most effective way of tackling our climate crisis and the cost of living crisis in that context is reducing energy consumption so big moves on it you know the the, the cleanest and greenest and cheapest energy is the one is, is that that you don't use and so having the skills and capability to make really deep cuts in energy consumption through efficiency and different ways of doing things is 
definitely part of the mix and that has you know huge paybacks particularly when energy prices are spiking so significantly but it's also about if, if we know where the future needs to be in terms of net zero the longer you prolong um, action the more expensive it will become and therefore taking action now and getting those skills in, uh, in, in place particularly as well because a lot of the initiatives that we're seeing are coming faster than people thought. So are the environmental and climate consequences of not taking action as well. So there's both the burning platform, but there's the pace of you know, seizing the opportunity that, that go hand in hand and investing in your organization's capability to take advantage and extract value from this transition, I think is where the big wins are going to be. And Leila, do you think that you know the companies are actually getting that or is it um, I mean it's maybe not even either all this but you know there are so many things that they're you're having to mitigate and be aware of now that it, you know, it would be understandable if if sustainable skills maybe wasn't top of the list but as Martin said there could be a double benefit when you start addressing this area. Certainly when we were speaking to people again there was that mix of responses some felt that they were already starting to think it about skills and workforce development and um, being very deliberate with their choices um, but recognized that they were still in early days on the, on the whole um, whereas others this this conversation was quite refreshing and brand new because we were speaking to people who believed and wanted to do something but needed additional mechanisms so again when we were first thinking about the report, we were very aware that there's a lot of noise about climate and sustainability targeting businesses and helping them to hopefully think through the things that they should be doing. But not very much from what we uh, could see in our literature review as well, when we did the initial research, was really helping businesses to step into practical action beyond the incremental mitigation measures you might have at a very applied level. How do you do that wider transformation at an applied level? So I feel like organisations are grappling with it at large. And if you had, and I think this question for probably for both of you, but uh, Leila, uh, first if I could ask you, if you had one outcome that you would like to see from the report what would what do you think it would be well I was very excited to do this report jointly with IEMA and as part of our world climate commitments because for me it's about creating impact I would like uh, the fact that we've open sourced the job families in there the maturity index in there the key um, blockers and enablers lists that are in the report the fact we've open sourced all that insight and collateral and toolkit I hope um, generates a whole set of um, momentous programs around different sectors and that we look back in a year and we see that each organization that has engaged with the material is taking their own journey that much more forward i mean martin i know that we you know we have that we've had a conversation with some of our um, our members over the last few days and there's been a huge amount of interest and you know, really keen to have a look at the report and see how um the toolkit can be used i mean what what would your be your best ever thing to come out of it if you had one outcome that you'd like to see? Well, I think building on Layla's point, um, one of the things that I think this um, the, the toolkit really does lend itself is to 
partnership working and collaboration on skills um, development. So not only just moving your own workforce forward, but thinking, how do I in my kind of, you know, if I'm working in a business and we, we work through this and develop a workforce transformation plan, how do I then relate that back into our local education providers, you know, colleges, so that we can, you know, collectively have many organizations being able to benefit from training and learning and development programs, but also thinking about how people can catalyze this through their supply chains as well, because, you know, quite often, a lot of the constraints that you will have will be through your your, your supply chain not being able to kind of keep pace with this, uh, and therefore, enabling this through the, you know, workforce development programs uh, in th- supply chains, um, really, you know, I think IEMA members have a big role to play in that both in terms of catalyzing that change, being able to help to upskill. So it's very much kind of that practitioner focus, which which really can come to the fore. That's a a really good point. And uh, I mean, do you think, back to this point about you know, uh, engaging with the C-suite. Do you think the toolkit gives you that that sort of narrative to be able to talk to people who perhaps don't have a a technical understanding of sustainability, but understand that it's important from an organisational point of view? D- definitely, and you know, when we when we built our sustainability skills map and you know rooted our competence base on that, communication and collaboration and stakeholder engagement and leadership are all core attributes that our practitioner and full members are demonstrating. And therefore, and our how-to series, which is enabling people to build up those softer skills so that they can be really effective and work upwards in the organisation, I think this is a, a real opportunity to have um, a lot more impact. And uh, yes, I mean, I would point people to the uh, the media skills, which is obviously done by a seasoned professional and is particularly good. Uh, not that I'm uh, polishing my halo there or anything. <laughs> Um, but uh, Leila, I mean, as you mentioned, there's going to be hopefully a whole load of work. This is just the start to come out of it, uh, from out of the report. Are you optimistic when you talk to businesses, uh, I mean, all over the world as well, that people are beginning to get this on a on a fundamental level? That actually, in the same way as you uh, would expect to see a health and safety briefing for everyone in an organisation when they started, that, that the same is beginning to be true of sustainability as well. And it's not just in a few bits of the organisation, which, you know, in the past have struggled to have their voice heard. Absolutely. I mean, it, it feels like a, a really exciting time, actually, to be working in the the domain and working with lots of different organizations going through this tipping point moment that I, I genuinely believe is happening uh, we often use and think about the metaphor of the shift to the digital economy what we are experiencing is a shift to a green economy and that is so much more powerful because it's got a whole host of other positive benefits for hu- humanity attached to it but it's it's something that our clients are asking us about on a very frequent basis. Um, it's something that Deloitte itself has been going on a journey around. And we use a case study of ourselves in the report because we are equally going on this journey 
Um, w- one example is that we've now have committed to every one of our, I think it's 350,000, probably a few more in there, employees internationally all have compulsory learning around climate as a basic. And so that I think is a, a evidence of a big organisation such as Deloitte, and we're not the only ones now, but of really stepping into this new um, transition to the green economy. And are you excited by that, Leila? I mean, did, does it feel that there's a, you know, there's a real meaning behind uh, the work that's going on? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at my career, I've always been driven to create um, impact and uh, both environmental and social value. I started my career in the not-for-profit sector, then a social enterprise. And the very reason I joined Deloitte was to amplify my impact by working with large organisations on trying to get them to integrate and um, transform towards a purpose and um, environmentally sound set of strategies and uh, operations. And I feel like I'm getting to live that dream now. Oh, that's brilliant. That's like, So you're optimistic for the future then, that's fair to say, because you normally ask our guests. It is fair to say. It is fair. I, I have my moments. I think it's fair to say that any of us who have worked in change agent type roles, and I'm sure many of your listeners will find this resonates you have your knocks and your energy levels go down and you have to be very resilient but actually keeping an eye on that bigger goal and feeling it become more and more real and tangible is really important oh that's brilliant to hear well thank you Leila and Martin thanks ever so much for joining us and talking about the uh, report and uh, as we said you know do engage us in social media, tag us in, uh, tell us what you think about the report and anything else you'd like to hear us talk about in the months uh, to come. But listening to all of that very closely uh, and live live in the studio or live on, on a line somewhere is uh, our press advisor, Andre Farah. Um, Andre, you've been listening to that and you're bringing us the environmental news live this month. What's hot this week? And or maybe that's just no pun intended, I should say. But what are the hot environmental issues from your point of view? Well, I think the obvious one, and of course, the, the media landscape is a very bleak place these days. So it takes the the shock of the real climate emergency to break through. But I think the, uh, um, the devastating heat waves that are being seen in India and Pakistan clearly have to be top of the list uh, pretty much every week, every month, uh, every news cycle. We're seeing some evidence of the weight of the climate emergency bearing down on the country, uh, the countries around the world. And Comparing that against what we've been hearing, the the constructive and strategic approach to green skills, which is a long-term thing compared to what now seems to be this rapidly deepening and speeding up climate emergency is is one of those things that I think we all have to grapple with. It's it's interesting to reflect really on, on how the it, the, the news of the emergency today really has to impact on the speed at which businesses, governments and civil society move. And I mean, again, you've, had, you've got huge experience, Andre, in this space. You've worked for many years with conservation charities uh, in the UK and around the world. I mean, sometimes we hear from some more sceptical people, oh, well, you know, we've been talking about the polar bears going extinct for 50 years and it still hasn't happened. They're still there. You know, the ecosystems haven't collapsed. But I wondered if you could perhaps put that in a bit of context because 
it, since you've been working in this area, there has been huge change, hasn't there, even in that time? Genuinely, Sarah, it's quite terrifying. The uh, the perspective of just a few decades where we're seeing uh, the, all the indices going in the wrong way, the, the planetary diversity of species is is reducing. And the, the climate crisis, at least now, is, is getting those headlines. The the biodiversity crisis behind that is, is potentially even bigger and more devastating. The solutions, as we know, are often combined and integrated, but it, it's getting to that point of actually seeing delivery around all all of these uh, programs and knowledge that we now have because um, you know generations in the past have have perhaps been capable of saying well we didn't know what the impact was but now we do and uh, it's gratifying to see so many in the business community so many of our members now uh, really getting this and getting to grips with the strategic implications of it all. Of course one of the areas where uh, climate change and an increase in climate and carbon-based economy kind of collide, if you like, is around air pollution, which has, I think, in recent years been included now as part of the sustainability conversation because it affects people in marginalised communities and also is not only driven by climate change and exacerbated, but is a killer. And uh, there were some WO. HO guidelines breached for just about every home in the UK, wasn't there? And the study from Imperial College recently. Do you think it's that kind of stark message? I mean, sometimes it is difficult for people to 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 really understand or really feel things that are happening a long way away. But when it's in your area, in your street, it's much clearer, isn't it, of the of the challenges that we're facing because of the of the way we're living at the moment. Yes, I think the the environmental problems are are definitely coming home. I remember a conversation with a journalist many years ago when he he said it was easy to get stories out there about gross levels of pollution, where pollution in the River Mersey wasn't measured by the chemicals in the river. It was measured by the diameters of the fat balls floating past Pier Head. And it's much easier to get those messages across than slight variations in concentrations of parts per million um, in in our atmosphere or in our water. But I, I think this this study, which provides a, a tool that you can actually check to see the the air quality risks at your own address, is quite stark. I mean, I, I, I live in rural Kent and assume that I'm breathing reasonably clear air. But even out here, we're feeling the, the effects of that. Yet in inner cities, the, the levels are uh, hugely damaging. And, and uh, again, it must be another message that hastens action because these, these problems are happening now. And I suppose we wouldn't. It would be remiss of us not to very quickly mention grass cutting and and the and plant life saying don't mow your grass, which I think everybody can sign up to because not only is it less effort, but it's really good for the wildlife as well. Absolutely, and and it's also one of those things that can improve the the wildlife around you, and you can enjoy that and have the time to sit and back and watch it. And as we were speaking, literally as we were speaking, a red kite just flew past my window. So we must remember that e- even in the depths of the crises we face, conservation and action can make real and positive differences. 
What a lovely image to end on that idea of the red kite floating past your window there, Andre. Andre, Leila and Martin, thanks so much for a really fascinating uh, time. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Please do let us know what you think. Uh, Get in touch on social media, email us and let us know if there's anything else you'd like to see in upcoming episodes. But from us to you for now, thanks very much indeed. Indeed.